Well, good morning again, church. So glad you've chosen to worship with us today. If you have your Bible, open up to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. 1 Timothy, chapter 6. We are starting today a new series to go along with our Be Rich emphasis that Pastor Matt uh, talked about just a moment ago. And uh, all of the month of November here at Fort Caroline is about uh, loving and serving others, loving and serving others. And uh, this idea of being rich, it comes from this text here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verse 18 says that we are to be rich in good works. We're to be rich in good works. And that's how we should live a rich and full life is through the things that we do. And so we're going to talk over the next four weeks about what that looks like. And as I uh, try to introduce maybe the whole series together, these next four weeks, uh, we're going to try to answer a question. We're going to try to answer a question uh, that, that really starts with another question. My, my first question is this, is how is it possible that we are so miserable, right? Like think about the world that we live in. Uh, the, the, the Surgeon General released uh, a study like classifying loneliness and isolation as like, uh, like a, a disease to be worried about on the same level as cigarettes. Like we are in a spot where we're in a dangerous spot as a society. Everyone you meet is miserable. Suicides on the rise, depression on the rise. And yet a little over a hundred years ago, when you needed to go to the restroom, you had to go outside. Now... Everybody has indoor plumbing, just a miracle, right? Some of you guys have two and three bathrooms in your home, so you don't have to walk so far when you got to go. For $30, did you know this? Amazon will send you a bidet that you can attach to your toilet, so you don't even have to fool with wiping while you're there. Excuse the crude <laughs> illustration. In 1950, the average home size in the United States of America was 953 square feet. Happiness levels through the roof compared to now when it's over 2,000 square feet. How are we so miserable? In my pocket right now is a device that has replaced computers, televisions, radios, gaming consoles, cameras, libraries, etc. And yet people are more, every one of you have one. And people are more miserable than they've ever been. Medicine has enabled us to live longer and better than at any point in history. People take trips for fun now to outer space. That's a real thing that happens. It was a huge deal when I was a kid to go to a camping trip two hours away. Now people are like, I'm going to go to space. And yet we as a society are more miserable than ever. How and why is that the case? And that's what we're going to attempt to answer over these next four weeks. I want to read this text to you, and then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to try to see what God's Word has to say. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to read verses 17 through 19, says this. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that life is truly found in you. Scott's baptism demonstrates you make us new when we put our faith in you. 
We're thankful for that new life that we have in Christ. Lord, would you let us live as if we already have that new life? Would you let us live as if people who truly have found in life and life abundantly as you promise? Lord, as we dive into your word today and over these next several weeks, would you show us what it truly means to live the good life according to your word and to your will? And then Lord, help us to respond accordingly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The main idea, if I was going to summarize the next four weeks, like all of this series, what we're going to say is this. The main idea of this series is the good life is a life given away. The good life is a life given away. This week, we're going to focus in on verse 17 of our text. And my idea, main idea for this particular sermon is this, is that when your hope is in heaven, you can enjoy life on earth. When your hope is in heaven, you can enjoy life on earth. This text, he says in verse 17, he says, as for the rich in this present age, and many of you tuned out right then. You're like, oh, not talking to me, right? But I want to argue this morning that he is talking to you. Almost all Americans earn enough money, they just spend too much of it. Almost all of us have more coming in than we need, but many of us are spending more than we have. And so, Rich, I'm going to define for the purpose of this sermon, I'm going to define someone as rich as someone who has disposable income. You know what that word means? Just, just, you have money that you can choose where it goes. If you have any kind of disposable income, or if your life is set up in such a way where you should have disposable income, but you don't, then this passage is talking about you. I recognize in a room of this size, there are people with major, real financial struggles and hardships, and, uh, and you are not in a place where this can apply to you. You're not in a place of disposable income, and life has been hard to you. I recognize that. I want to encourage you in that space. Tell somebody. Our, your church would love to help in some real, meaningful ways with that. But for the vast majority of people, we have enough coming in, we just don't deal with it in the proper ways. And so we would be classified, as verse 17 says, the rich in this present age. And so the Apostle Paul, he gives us some instructions here. He says, he says basically, here's two things you're not supposed to do and one thing you are supposed to do. He says, don't be proud. Don't put your hope in the uncertainty and riches, but instead hope in God. That's what verse 17 says today. Two negatives and a positive. And I got to tell you, as I was studying this this week, this has got to be like one of those things well, when you hear verse 17, doesn't everyone go, well, duh, right? This is not complicated Bible theology, right? Nobody in here wakes up in the morning and goes, I'm going to put my, all my hope and trust in money, and I'm not going to trust God at all, right? Anybody say that today when you woke up? No. But we all struggle to a degree with this verse, don't we? We all struggle to a degree with putting our hope in God and not in our finances, when you have a knockdown, drag out fight with your spouse, what typically started the fight? When you get sad or depressed or frustrated about your life circumstances, what do you often think would be the solution to those problems? How often is money the centerpiece of what's most important in our life, the things we obsess about, think about, stress about, worry about, work towards? Money is the centerpiece in many ways of our lives. And yet nobody sets out to put their hope in money, and we all do it. Why is that? And so I would answer that first question. That's our first point this morning is why do we do that? Why do we hope in money? 
Why do we put our hope in money? Understanding why something works helps us know how to deal with the problem, right? Not long ago, uh, I had a, a, a gas-powered, um, uh, what do you call this, pressure washer, right? I could not get it to start. And it's because I don't know how carburetors work. Now, some of you guys do. Some of you guys understand how carburetors work, and you could fix it with, without thinking about it. I'm not that guy. Some of you are thinking right now that you're going to come up to me after the service and tell me about how carburetors work. I don't want to hear it. It won't matter. It doesn't work in my brain, okay? But if I knew how carburetors work, I could have fixed that pressure washer instead of selling it to the guy down the street for 20 bucks. I bought an electric one. I don't know how electricity works either. It just doesn't break as often. When you know how something works, you can fix it. And when we understand how money operates in our lives and in our hearts, we're going to have a better chance of doing what verse 17 of chapter 6 here says to do. And here's my thesis this morning. Here's my, my thought, my guess, my suspicion about why money is so difficult to shake, why money has such a grip on our hearts. I'm convinced it's because money acts like God. Money acts like God in our life. It looks like God. It functions like God in many ways. It does many of the things God does, not as well, but it does many of the things that God is supposed to do in our lives. And so we treat it like God. Think about what money can do for you and does do for you. Money creates things for you, doesn't it? Like if I wanted a Diet Coke and I didn't have a Diet Coke, but I had $2, I could create a Diet Coke, couldn't I, right? Money can take things and just make it appear out of nowhere. If you've got money, you can create things. Feels even more magical when we use those little plastic cards we keep in our wallet, right? Then we don't even have to get, it's just magic. Like I just wave this thing and whoop, Diet Coke appears. It's awesome. It's all fun and games so you go look at your bank account. And yet Genesis 1-1 says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the ultimate creator. Money is an imitation creator. It functions in the same way, not as good, not as real, but kind of looks like it. Money also sustains us, doesn't it? It kind of keeps things going. Having money enables us to keep functioning in the lives that we have. If you run out of money, you will eventually not have a home anymore. If you run out of money, you will not be able to eat. Money sustains you and your family. Money, in a very real sense, seems to hold our lives together, doesn't it? And yet Colossians says that God is before all things, Jesus specifically, and him all things what? Hold together. And so money looks like it's holding everything together when in reality, Jesus is holding everything together. It looks and acts and functions like God. Money also gives us joy, right? Can we just admit that for a minute? The money is fun. It's more fun having money than it is not having money, right? Amen? It's okay to admit that. Chris Jansen, he had a one-hit wonder. That's why you've never heard of his name, but he had a song several years ago. And the opening uh, verse ends this way. He says, I know everybody says money can't buy happiness. And then there's a pause. And then he says, but it could buy me a boat. And he goes on to list all the things he could buy with money, truck and a cooler and, and a trip and all this stuff. And the implication is that no money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me stuff that makes me happy. Right? The things we can do with money, they bring a smile to our face. They make life fun sometimes. And yet, Romans chapter 15, verse 13, says that our God of hope is who fills us with all joy. 
and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit we may abound in hope. Which is interesting given our verse 17. Where should joy actually come from? It should come from God. And yet we sometimes find it in the things that money can do for us and so we say, man, money kind of looks like God. I'm going to treat it that way. Money can provide for our needs. Money can make money. In fact, you've heard it said maybe that it takes money to make money. Anybody ever heard that and said that before? If you have an extra 10, 20, 30, $40,000 around, you can go buy a house and then you can be a landlord to that person and, and all of a sudden now your money is making you money or you can put it in a market or, or you can do something like that that's gonna create more money for you. And yet the verse we read today, verse 17, says that it is God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. So is it the money that provides for it or is it God? Money acts and imitates God's in many, God in many ways. Money can protect us. We believe money can guard us, can protect us, can shield us. What do we call that pot of money that we try to set aside for unexpected expenses? That's our emergency fund, right? That's what people will call it sometimes. In other words, when things get hard, when we're unsafe, where do we run? We're running to our emergency fund. It's going to keep us safe. It'll protect us. If it's big enough, I'll be secure. If we trick ourselves into believing if I have enough money in our savings account, the world outside, it can't hurt me. It can't hurt my kids. It can't hurt the future I've been working towards. We're safe if I have enough money. Money protects us, we believe. You know, the Bible teaches that God himself is our protector. Psalm 91, verse 14 to 16 says, because he holds fast to me in love, this is God speaking to us, I will deliver him, I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The Bible says God is the one that protects us. Money has incredible power over us, doesn't it? My first job was about 13 years old, which I'm pretty sure is not legal. I worked at the farmer's market in Cairo, Georgia, unloading trucks that the farmers would bring in from their local farms and we'd put it in storage and then uh, throughout the day, the big distributor semi-trucks would come and we'd load it onto their trucks. That's all I did, off the small trucks onto the big trucks, day by day, right? And this, it was a summer job, so summer in South Georgia, it's a great time to be doing manual labor. <laughs> we would cheer when the bell peppers came in. Those are light, easy to carry. We, we would cry when the watermelons came in. And I worked my tail off, 40 hours a week in the sun. Minimum wage back then was $5.15 an hour. And I remember getting that first $200 paycheck that I got. And let me tell you, I felt a rush in my bones like I had never felt before. It was like the first hit of a new drug, right? 13-year-old kid with $200, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I couldn't even fathom how many candy bars that was. Like, I don't know, what else would you buy? I never experienced it before. But I tell you what, I learned how to spend it. By the time I started school that year, it was gone. I can't tell you where it went. That's how money works, doesn't it? It's like a, it's like a drug that grabs a hold of us. And ever since I got that job, man, I've never been satisfied. I, that, that wasn't enough for me, right? The, the $200 kept trying to earn since then. And that's happened to all of us in some way, shape, or form. When it gets a hold of our heart. We add all of this stuff up, this money functioning like God, but not as God. When that goes unchecked, we begin to treat money like God. 
We begin to prioritize. It becomes the number one thing in our life. We orient our whole life around it. We study it. How can I get more? How can I make it go farther? How can I keep what I've got? Are there secrets to multiplying it? We even worship it, don't we? Nobody out here is going to say, yeah, I worship money. Hey, what does the word worship mean? Webster's going to tell you it means to show reverence and adoration. I got to tell you, the way we treat and talk about money, it gets a lot of reverence and adoration from us, doesn't it? We hold near the things we love, don't we? Some of us hold our money as close as humanly possible. We pursue money with everything we have. You see how powerful a force money is in our life. And I get it. You came to church today, perhaps not to hear about money. As Matt said, you may want to have heard about Jesus or about God or about salvation. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Preachers get a bad rap for talking about money, don't we? Right? I found in my experience, preachers do one of two things when it comes to money. They either talk about it way too much, right? You can't go to church without hearing them asking for money. Or they talk about it not at all. Right? And they just ignore it, pretend like it's not a topic of conversation. The Bible doesn't do either of those things. The Bible talks about it regularly without making it the ultimate thing in our life. Jesus talked about money more than any other subject. The Bible even says that where your treasure is, speaking of your finances, where your money is, your heart is. And let me tell you, church, I, as your pastor, I am in the heart business. And if I'm going to get after your heart, if I'm going to share with you faithfully what God's word has to say, we are going to talk about money. It would be pastoral malpractice to not bring it up. Just as it's pastoral malpractice to make it the be-all and end-all, it's not. It's just as much wrong of us to just never address it at all. Why? Because money has a hole in our hearts. It gets us in a way that nothing else does. And so the next question then, how do we put our hope in God? We've established why we put our hope in money. It's because it acts like God. How do we turn from that way of living and instead put our hope in the living God? I think a few things are required. Number one, we've got to see money clearly, church. We've got to see it with clear eyes. That's what I'm trying to get at here in this first point. We've got to understand who money or what money is and what it does to us. In the parable, parable of the sower, Jesus is talking about people who hear the good news of the gospel and how they respond and react to it. And he says different types of hearts, different people receive the truth of Scripture differently. In Mark chapter 4, he's telling this story and he talks about one particular type of person whose faith starts and then dies off. He says in verse 18, others are the ones where the seed is sown among thorns. They are those who hear the world or hear the word, but the cares of the world and look at this, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and they choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. Jesus says there's some people that they, they were on a trajectory of faith. They were on a trajectory of believing and following Jesus, but they loved money. They got tricked by money to the point where they abandoned the faith. Money is a deceitful thing. It can trick us. It tricks us into believing it's God. It tricks us into believing it can do things for us that it cannot. That's why in verse 17 he says, hey, don't put your hope on the uncertainty of riches. It's deceived you into thinking it's certain it is not. 
The enemy wants you to see money as ultimate. He wants to get you to give your life for it. He wants you to, to neglect your kids for it. He wants you to live in constant anxiety over it. He wants you to borrow tons of it so you're enslaved in debt. And he wants you to live in a state of constant disappointment because you don't have enough of it. Our relationship to money is killing so many of us and we don't even realize it. Tim Keller is a pastor I've quoted here before. He wrote a book in 2011 called Counterfeit Gods, which speaks to what I'm talking about here. And in it, he identifies money as one of those counterfeit gods. And he says this after being a pastor for more than 30 years. He says, as a pastor, I've had people come to me and confess that they struggle with almost every kind of sin. Almost. I cannot recall anyone ever coming to me and saying, I spend too much money on myself. I think my greedy lust for money is harming my family, my soul, and my people around me. Greed, he says, hides itself from the victim. The money, the money God, the counterfeit God, the money God's modus operandi includes blindness to your own heart. Church, if we're going to break the power that money has on our hearts and on our lives, the first step is to recognize that it has power in the first place. Earlier in this chapter, 1 Timothy 6, 9 says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It's dangerous, church. And so how do we see money? We've got to see money as a tool. Money is not evil. There's, money is not wrong. To, further up in, uh, in verse 10, it says money is the root of all kinds of evil. Commonly misquoted verse, people say money is the root of all evil. All evil. You've heard that said? Money is not the root of all evil. The Bible says money is the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money is morally neutral, like food or drink or rest or entertainment or any or number of things in this life. It's morally neutral. But how you use it and how you relate to it determines its morality. It's a tool that God gives us to steward, to care for, to use for his kingdom. It is not God, though, and we must stop treating it that way. Second, I think we have to live generously. If we're going to put our hope in God, we've got to live generously. Once we start seeing money rightly, we can start using it properly. And that means living generously. If we understand money to be a gift that God has given us, and he's entrusted to us for a short time, and he wants us to honor him with it, we're going to begin using it correctly. We'll begin giving it away. We'll be generous people. We will give to our church. We'll give to missions. We'll give to local causes, like we're doing this month. Our Ecuador mission trip that we sent last month, fully funded by you guys. It's one of the things I love about this church. This is a generous church, a church that's eager to give. Kids go to camp every year because of your generosity. Arlington Community Services is being supported in major ways because of your generosity. Hunger Fight, First Coast Women's Services being changed because of what you guys have done through generosity. We're in the upper tier of missions as we shared on Sunday night upper tier of missions giving in the state because of your generosity. That's what it looks like to break the hold that money has on us. I'd imagine, though, some of us have room to grow. And that's all I'm asking is that we evaluate our hearts and see if there's room to grow. Living generously, it helps promote a healthy relationship with money. When you're able to give it away, it shows it doesn't have power over you. Generosity is like a muscle that must be exercised in order to work properly. When we are living generously, we're declaring to the world that we truly hope in God, aren't we? With our actions, we're showing that I trust God enough to provide for my needs. I believe he's going to honor the faith that it takes 
to give? How do we hope in God we live like God calls us to live? And then we trust him with the results. The next thing we've got to do if we're really going to trust in God instead of money is we've got to be people who serve others. A great way to shake the hold that money has on our hearts is by serving others. The heart that's gripped by money is actually, money's the, the symptom more than the cause. They're actually gripped by love for self, right? We want money, why? For me, for me, for me, for myself. But when you spend your time, which is another vital resource that we'll talk about, when you spend your time serving other people instead of earning money, you're with your actions declaring, hey, my hope is in God and not in my finances. This is why these service projects to be rich are so important. Do they help our local partners? Yes, no question. First Coast Women's Services is spotless thanks to our team. It's great. But they also serve us. They help us declare to ourselves and to our own hearts and to the world that our hope is in the Lord and not in our resources. Our missions team, again, in Ecuador, I guarantee you, after seeing some of the poverty and difficulty that exists in that country, I don't think any one of them got off the plane here in the States and go, whew, man, better get back to getting rich, right? It changes your perspective when you spend time serving other people and investing in other people. It reorients your own lives. How do we hope in God? We view the world the way God does, and we begin to step into it as missionaries instead of as consumers, Next, I want to encourage us to stop comparing. The comparison game is one that we will always lose. How do we put our hope in God? Well, number one, we've got to stop comparing ourselves to other people. We've got to fight the temptation to look at everyone else's money and wish it was ours. Some people are experts out there at counting other people's money. Amen? You look at the car or the boat or the vacation they took and say, how do they afford that? You ever had that conversation with your spouse? Is that how Christians operate? We look at other people's blessings and go, oh, can can you believe them? What does the Bible say Christians should do when other people are blessed? It says we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. If we can't do that, maybe we should just stop looking, right? Let's just stop looking around. Satan wants you to look at others and see what they'll have so you'll look to God and ask why you don't have it too. That's what the enemy wants. He wants you to look around, see what everybody else has got, so then you'll go to God and go, God, where's mine? That's his desire for your life. That's his plan to derail your faith. How do we hope in God? We concern ourselves not with storing up treasure on this earth, but instead we spend our life thinking of how we can store up treasure in heaven. Next, we've got to practice gratitude. If we're going to really put our hope in God, we've got to practice gratitude. We've got to discipline ourselves to be thankful for what we have. What exactly are we owed in this life? Right? What does God owe you and I? Anything? Nothing at all. So that means that anything we do have is a gift. And there's nothing more disrespectful than to receive a gift and not say thank you. And many of us live our lives that way all the time. I want to encourage you to take steps intentionally to remind yourself of all that you've been given in your prayer life. Make space to thank God for what he's done for you. And your family, give thanks for him. At the, and when you give thanks for him at the dinner table, actually give thanks. Our place, dinner table is the area we try to practice this in our home. My uh, three-year-old is now, it's now her season of life where she's in charge of saying the blessing before dinner. And um, 
she, she, all she's got down right now is thank you, Jesus, for our food. That's all she says every time. But now, never mind. I was, she, she just starts talking sometimes, okay? Uh, my wife may get mad at me for this story, but that's okay. Uh, but she'll just start talking. She'll say, thank you, Jesus, for our food. And then she'll say, and then um, have, have playtime, and then for Palmer in my class. And then she'll just start listing off all the things that happened in her day. And it's the most precious thing in the world. But I'm thankful and, and happy that the one thing that she does say is, thank you, Jesus, for our food. Sometimes my kids, just like most kids, they struggle with gratitude sometimes. I struggle with gratitude just as much. So our family sponsors a compassion kid. His name is Stephen. And so when, when I haven't heard thank you enough in our home, right, when, there's, when the kids are feeling a little too entitled, I will go pull Stephen's picture off the fridge and bring him to the dinner table. And we'll talk about Stephen and the life that he lives and the, the needs that he has, what his life is like, and hopes to stir up gratitude in your life. Take some small steps in your own home and your family to cultivate gratitude as a way of demonstrating your hope in God. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, I want to encourage you to remember your salvation. Remember your salvation. Each and every person who's ever been born is born in debt. Crushing, crippling debt. And I'm not talking about financial debt. I'm talking about a debt that's even worse than that. It's a debt that's created by our sin and we owe it to God and it's more than we could possibly imagine paying. It's a debt that can only be paid by spending eternity separated from God in a sort of debtor's prison, if you will. And yet God has compassion on us and he sends his son, Jesus, to die on a cross for our sins. Look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. How did he do that? He forgave all of our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. By going to the cross, Jesus pays our debt and he sets us free. And people who know that know in a very real way that true hope in this life and the next is only found in Jesus. And when we've been given that type of a gift of eternity in heaven, of our sins forgiven, we have no choice but to live as if our only hope is God because we've experienced it. Do you struggle with putting your hope in God? Go back to the gospel. So what do we do with this? How do we, how do we act on this? How do we close? And I want to offer this idea to you, is that the things that God has given you, the gifts that you have in this life, God has given them to you to enjoy. Did you know that? God wants you to enjoy your life. God wants you to enjoy the stuff that you have. The money that he's given you, some of it, he wants you to enjoy it, to have fun with even. Verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to set their hopes on the uncertainty on riches, but to set their hope on God. Why? Who richly provides us with everything to do what with? To enjoy. God wants you to enjoy your life. The person whose salvation is secure, who's thankful for what they have, who sees God and their money rightly, that person is truly free. They're free to enjoy the life that God has given them. They're free from the bondage of greed. They're free of the constant rat race to get more and more and more and more. The person, on, by contrast, who's a slave 
to the God of money never enjoys life, do they? This is true for rich people and for poor people and everyone in between. We have this way of convincing ourselves that if I just had a little bit more, I'd be okay. Have you ever said that? I just need a little bit more. I just got to get to this level. If I get this much of a raise, if the house was this big, if I could just get this car, I'd be good. That's one thing poor people and rich people have in common. They say the same thing. Just a little bit more. It's like a carrot being dangled in front of us that we will never, ever reach. And this is Satan's plan from beginning to end to keep you reaching for that instead of reaching for the Lord. We're always one step away from happiness. and We never quite get there. Jim Carrey, great actors of our time. He says, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see it's not the answer. This is a man who could buy anything he wanted to, do anything he wanted to, have anything he wanted to. And he goes, that's not it. That's not it. I wish everybody could experience it so they would give up trying. For many people, God has given you more than you need, but you don't enjoy it because you're so concerned about what you don't have rather than enjoying what you do. Imagine with me as we close two kids on Christmas morning. You can see the house, right? Their living room is decorated like some of you have already done. Presents are under the tree, and tucked behind the tree is a bicycle, which is like the ultimate gift you can give Christmas morning. Right, parents? There's a bicycle there, and the first kid, we'll call him Johnny, he goes and he gets out the bike, and he looks at it, and he's thrilled because he wanted a bike. That's what he was after. But this bike isn't quite the color he had hoped for. It's green, and he wanted red. And it doesn't have the little pegs on the front, you know, where you can do tricks that he was wishing it was had. It only has five speeds, and he wishes it had... 10. So Johnny's a little depressed Christmas morning because the bike's not quite what he wanted. Across the street, Joey also gets a bike. He gets the exact same bike. And it's not how he dreamed, but it's a bike. Joey takes that bike. Christmas morning, it's cold, flip-flops and PJs, and he hits the street and he cruises. And he's got the biggest smile on his face. The same gift given to two kids with two different perspectives. One is enjoying their gift freely. The other is stuck inside because it's just not good enough. Many of us, God desires for us to enjoy our lives, to live in freedom and hope, but we're so focused on what we do not have. We're so focused on money and getting more and just a little bit more that we never can quite get to that place of enjoying life. God calls us and says, hey, don't put your hope in money. It's going to let you down. Instead, put your hope in God and live freely with joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, in a very real sense, in a very practical sense, your word tells us how to live. God, I pray that we would listen to it. I pray that I would listen to it. I pray that each and every person here would look to you and you alone as our ultimate source of hope and joy. You and you alone accomplished our salvation on the cross. You and you alone provide richly for the needs that we have. You and you alone take care of us, provide for us, protect us. And ultimately, God, you and you alone should bring us joy. So would you help us to be people who see money for what it is, a counterfeit God, and instead see you for who you are, the true God of the universe in which all of our hope should lie. So as we go into our week, would you help us to live for other people, to give our lives away as a living testimony to who you are and what you've done for us. 
And God, would you help us to worship you now in spirit and in truth for what you've done for us on the cross. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.